Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Hi, I'm Heather Renee May, and this is Flipping Dreams podcast. One, two, three, four. Hello, Flipping Dreamers. How are we doing out there? Hopefully you're having a good week. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed the last couple episodes where I took a trip back in time, a little Denver nostalgia with uh, the band filter that I sing with when I was uh, like in the early 90s in Denver at the Lion's Lair. And then uh, last week's episode is all about Muddy's Java Cafe and some stories from that iconic, the great last coffee house, their last great coffee house, however that is. So anyway, hope you enjoyed that. And this week I am going to kick off sort of a series uh, where I'm going to read a book to you. It's a travel memoir that was first published in 1961 in Canada. And I think that you can actually... It went out of print for a while. I think you uh, Seal Press picked it up in the late nine or sorry in the early nineties. You might be able to get a copy from Seal Press uh, through Amazon, um, but definitely probably not audio. Um, it's a kind of an obscure travel book from a woman who was super inspirational to me. I think I've, I've mentioned her in previous podcasts. Her name was uh, Muriel Wiley Blanchett. And she wrote this book called The Curve of Time. Um, It's a classic memoir of a woman and her children who explored the coastal waters of the Pacific Northwest. And this is a book that someone told me about when I was visiting Nanaimo, uh, Canada, which is basically um, kind of on the west coast of um, of Vancouver Island. And... um, I have read it consistently over and over, gone back to it. Uh, Muriel uh, was um, a journalist back in the day, and she would write a lot of um, articles for magazines. And, and just she, her writing is so gorgeous, the way she describes their scene, and just the fact that, you know, in the early, well, this is probably the late 50s when she was writing it, if she published it in early six, in 61, and her and her kids by herself um, taking boats every summer and going up the inside passage and having adventures. So 
I wanted to kind of do a tribute to this book I didn't, and record this book through audio and then maybe share it with your family. And if they want to try to get it up on Amazon on AWS or whatever it's called, sorry, Audible, <laughs> um, they could be happy to share the recordings with them. So anyway, so we're going to start off with this and I hope you enjoy. <clears throat> the first is a preface. It's called Cappy. Looking back nearly 30 years, it is hard to remember exactly when, but I think our first encounter was occasioned by a small car stopping out at our front door. Out stepped a slight lady with brown, short-cropped hair to welcome us as newcomers, identifying herself as the person living alone on the point at the end of the road. She was matter-of-fact friendly, unassuming, with a no-nonsense side trying to hide a shy but rich sense of humor. Her name was Muriel Wiley Blanchett but everyone called her Cappy. She was on her way to the village, but just wanted to welcome us to the Courteous Point community. It was an inauspicious start to a friendship, but my Eleanor and Cappy soon found instant rapport, discovering a common interest in nature, art, and literature. The drop-ins and exchanges continued, but neither one of us could have predicted that this remarkable woman, living at the end of a trail on seven waterfront acres with dreamy views of islands, mountains, restless boats, and sea life, would turn our lives around. In 1959, we had left the foothills of southern Alberta and arrived on Vancouver Island with four children who had just had to adjust from riding horses and a one-room country school to the ordeal of traveling by bus to a large institution full of strangers. Courteous Point was a separate community of quiet achievers. We found ourselves surrounded by friendly neighbors in retirement from distinguished careers. On the one side was R.M. Patterson, author of The Dangerous River and other titles published in New York and London. On his border was Captain J.D. Prentice, who had commanded the Corvette Chambly, first RCN ship to sink a German submarine in the Second World War. Closer to us, we were privileged to have Donald McLaren, Canada's fourth-ranking first World War, fight, World War fighter ace for another good neighbor. On the other side were the Pierces, retired from a career in Hollywood as makeup artists, and the Buckles, Tony and Prudence, whose children grew up with ours and kept lasting friendships. Tony, ex-Indian Army, had been a contemporary of John Masters, adjutant of the Gurkhas, who had become internationally famous for his books on India. It was a pretty heady environment after the isolation of a cattle ranch, and they all made an impact on our lives. But no one more so than the shy, aloof, surprisingly competent and gifted Cappy Blanchett who lived alone at the end of the road and involved us all in a quickly developing drama. After six years of war and 12 grinding years in the foothills, we took time to adjust. That meant exchanging saddles for sale, so we acquired the Lady Mine, a 24-foot sloop, and found a berth for her at Dick Johnson's Wharf. Beside it was a 25-foot cruiser of modest mien, the Caprice, soon to gain international recognition. Cappy and her late husband had, had purchased it in 1923 for $600. When she came through the woods to check her boat, Cappy would often find me banging away on a portable typewriter aboard our sloop. She had read my first book, We Found Peace, published in 1953 by Thomas Allen in Toronto, about our struggles on the ranch, and knew I was trying to write a sequel. Often, she would perch on the transom and read the pages I had just typed, and we would talk about where I wanted to go from there. She never mentioned her own achievements with magazine articles, and I don't recall her ever making any critical remarks except to urge me to keep at it. 
By this time, Eleanor and I were on a solid footing with Cappy, and we will always remember the delightful times the three of us spent in the home she and her youngest son David had built after tearing down the old original McClure cottage. Then one day she arrived unexpectedly with an urgent air and as much suppressed excitement as her poker face would allow. She had just received a letter from Blackwood and Sons Edinburgh who had accepted her book, The Curve of Time, and were sending her a contract. Would we read it and could we help her to understand what to expect? For the first time, we realized that she had not only crafted articles for Blackwood's magazine, but also had sold pieces to several yachting magazines and even had made it into the prestigious Atlantic Monthly. We reacted to her news with joy and excitement. Just being able to share the experience recalled our own giddy days when our story had been accepted. I may have been guilty of exaggerating what she might expect in the way of autograph parties, the hurdles of interviews by radio critics and columnists. Carried away, I offered to act as her agent and help set up the publicity. Cappy turned to Eleanor in dismay. He isn't serious, is he? If he is, you must stop him. She managed to cool us down, and we all waited patiently for the lightning to strike, for the masses to discover this pleasing work so lovingly written. Nothing happened. During March 1961, Cappy received six copies of the English edition, one for each child and one for herself. Eleanor was the first to read Cappy's copy and probably the first to realize that this work was a classic of coastal cruising and something uniquely more. She had combined history and the environment as seen through the eyes of an artist who, in words, painted scenes and characters, mysticism and moods that were fast disappearing. Cappy wrote to Blackwoods for information and was told that 700 copies were being shipped to an associate in Toronto. Her friends in Victoria and Vancouver were anxiously impatient to read her book, and to help matters along, Cappy made a loan to the small bookstore in Sydney so they could order copies from Toronto. The little book, 202 pages, with a map and a dust jacket in muted colors, sold for $3.25. When she began to show signs of disappointment and frustration, I went ahead and sent off reviews as far east as the Beaver Magazine in Winnipeg, I managed to attract the attention of Bob Orchard, a CBC radio producer. He came to visit us, more than a little annoyed when he could not find a copy in Vancouver, and he managed to generate something. Cappy went back to her typewriter and stoically started to write a sequel, working in her bright and cheerful kitchen. She was typing away on September 30th, 1961, when her heart stopped. They found her slumped over her typewriter with work in progress. Don McLaren came to tell us, and we joined with her children, for a, a private family service in St. St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Sydney. Our friend Canon Freddie Vaughn Birch paid tribute to her life and her writing, holding a copy of The Curve of Time. Then we all gathered at our deep cove home and were able to meet all her children. Six months was all Cappy had to enjoy and share her creation, and she never knew the far-reaching importance her work would later come to enjoy. The lesson was not lost on us. There must be a better way, we thought, for Western art authors to gain recognition. As we widened our circle of friends, fate seemed to point the way. Attending crit creative writing lectures at the new Uni University of Victoria, I met a blind war veteran, Captain John Windsor, who at the age of 38 was trying to get established as a writer. We sent the completed manuscript to our friend in Toronto, who said it was a good story, but he could not see enough sales to justify publishing it. John tried another publisher in Toronto and received a cold rejection slip, which left him de dejected. 
Obviously, there was a great need for someone in our region to start publishing, so he slipped into the slot, producing his first book, Blind Date. As we gained confidence and experience, the memory of Cappy kept nagging at our conscience. The response to the small Blackwoods edition had brought a flood of appreciative letters from abroad to her children, with whom we had kept in touch, though they lived in Golden, Vancouver, and Victoria, and one daughter in England. Finally, we had a family conference and decided to publish a Canadian edition. We added the material Cappy had been working on when she died, and our editors stitched it all together. The faith of her friends and family has been fully vindicated in successive editions. What a pity Cappy cannot share it with us. Through all her disappointments, I felt somehow that she knew she had created a legacy for all time. Nearly 30 years ago, a critic in the venerable Ottawa Journal had read the English edition, then discovered the first Canadian one, said, it's tempting to think that the curve of time will become a minor Canadian classic, striding tall as the BC coastal mountains themselves. His musing has proved prophetic. Cappy would have loved it. She had cast a literary pearl in the placid waters of Canadian literature to inform and please family and friends, and the ripples had spread, without a break, to the farthest shores. In the process, she helped unknown writers, handicapped in many ways, to emerge. To be invited to write this piece for a, small edi- a special edition to mark her book's 30th anniversary is a reward I never expected. My wish for Cappy is that her classic may continue to be cherished by generation after generation of readers. Gray Campbell. And so we begin. Forward. This is neither a story nor a log. It is just an account of many long sunny summer months. During many years when the children were young enough and old enough to take on camping holidays up the coast of British Columbia. Time did not exist, or if it did, it did not matter, and perhaps it was not always sunny. Our world then was both wide and narrow, wide in the immensity of sea and mountain, narrow in that the boat was very small, and we lived and camped, explored and swam, in a little realm of our own making. At times we longed for a larger boat, for each summer, as the children grew bigger, the boat seemed to grow smaller, and it became a problem how to fit everyone in. She was only 25 feet long with a beam of six and a half feet, and until later, when the two oldest girls went east to school, she had to hold six human beings and sometimes a dog as well. There were narrow bunks in the cockpit, butting into what we called the back seat, which ran across the stern. Elizabeth slept in one, over the bedding and clothes locker. I slept in the other, over the gas tank and small food locker. We were quite comfortable. It was Peter, sleeping on the back seat, over the big food locker, who complained when we slipped down too far in our bunks and got tangled up with either his head or his feet. Up in the engine room, which was separated from the cockpit by a solid bulkhead with a small door, there was a wedge-shaped bunk just forward off of the engine. It started off with a width of four feet but tapered to six inches in the peak. That was where the two smaller girls slept. There was no headroom in there, We had to crouch to get through the little door, and we had to crouch all the time we were in there, unless the hatch was open. But the children were quite comfortable, and with the hatch open at night, they could lie there tracking down the different stars they knew and gradually adding others. That left John. John slept on a long pad down what he called the crack, which is the 18-inch space between my bunk and Elizabeth's. In the early days, no one could think what to do with John until he solved the problem all by himself. We were busy one afternoon cleaning up the boat, and nobody was paying any attention to what he was doing on shore. 
Once he came back to get the saw, then he spent the rest of the afternoon on the beach, very busy over something. Just before supper, he climbed on board, the saw under one arm and a neat bundle of wood under the other. I'm not going to sleep down that old crack anymore, he announced, as he spread out his bundle of wood and showed us. He had sawn up 12 22 by 3 inch boards and joined them all together with heavy fishing line, like a Venetian blind. It fitted across the space between the two bunks and under the two mattresses. The slats could not slip apart, for the line held them, yet it could be rolled up in the daytime and easily stowed away. The long, narrow pad still fitted. He had anticipated all possible objections. There was nothing we could say. John had thought of a way to get himself up out of that crack and was up to stay. There was a two-by-two-foot steering seat just forward of Elizabeth's bunk, over a locker that held pots and pans and everyday stores. The gasoline stove fitted on top of the steering seat when in use and folded up like a suitcase for stowing away. Its place was between the five-gallon demijohn of water and my bunk. Everything had to have its exact place or no one could move. We were very comfortable in the daytime with everything stowed away. The cockpit was covered and had heavy canvas curtains that fastened down or could be rolled up. There was a folding table whose legs jammed tightly between the two bunks to steady it, and it was camping, not cruising. We washed our dishes, one plate, one mug each, over the side of the boat. There was a little rope ladder that could be hung over the stern, and we used that when we went swimming. We may have grumbled about the accommodation, not about the boat herself. Lightly built, half-inch cedar, and well-designed, she never hesitated to attempt anything we wanted her to try. She was uncomfortable in much of a beam sea, so for all our sakes, we humored her by working crab fashion along the coast, first one way and then the other. But it was a following sea that she loved best, and after a long, tiring day, it was never by her wish that we would give up and slip into the sudden calm of a sheltered anchorage where she had to lie all quiet and only gently stirring. By the author Muriel Wiley Blanchett in Vancouver Island. The Curve of Time On board our boat one summer, we had a book by Maurice Miterlink called The Fourth Dimension, the fourth dimension being time, which, according to Dunn, doesn't exist in itself, but is always relative to the person who has the idea of time. Miterlink used a curve to illustrate Dunn's theory. Standing in the present, on the highest point of the curve, you can look back and see the past, or forward and see the future, all in the same instant. Or, if you stand off to one side of this curve, as I am doing, your eye wanders from one to the other without any distinction. In dreams, the mind wanders in and out of the present, through the past and the future, unable to, to distinguish between what has not yet happened and what has already befallen. Miterlink said that if you kept track of your dreams, writing them down as soon as you awoke, you would find that a certain number were of things that had already happened. Others would be connected with the present, but a certain number would be about things that had not yet happened. This was supposed to prove that time is just a dimension of space and that there is no difference between the two, except that our consciousness roves along this curve of time. In my mind, I always think of that summer as the Miterlink summer, the year we wrote down our dreams. The children always called it the year of the bears. Towards the end of June, or it might have been July, we headed up Jervis Inlet. This inlet cuts through the coast range of British Columbia and extends by winding reaches in a northerly direction for about 60 miles. Originally perhaps a fault in the Earth's crust 
and later scoured out by a glacier since retreated, it is a roughly a mile wide and completely hemmed in on all sides by stupendous mountains, rising from almost perpendicular shores to heights of from five to 8,000 feet. All the soundings on the chart are mar marked 100 fathoms with the no bottom mark right up to the cliffs. Stunted pines struggle up some of the ravines, but their hold on life is short. Sooner or later, a winter storm or spring avalanche sweeps them out and away, and next summer, there will be a new cascade in their place. Once you get through Agamemnon, Agamemnon Channel into the main inlet, you just have to keep going. There's no shelter, no place to anchor. In summertime, the wind blows up the inlet in the morning, down the inlet from 5 o'clock on. In winter, I am told, the wind blows down the inlet most of the time, so strong and with such heavy willy waws that no boat can make against it. I know that up at the head of the inlet, most trappers' cabins are braced with heavy poles towards the north. For some reason that I have forgotten, perhaps the hope for, of trout for supper, we decided to anchor in Vancouver Bay for lunch. Vancouver Bay is about halfway up Jervis and only makes a very temporary anchorage good for a couple of hours on a perfectly calm day. It is a deep bay between very high mountains with a valley and three trout streams. You can drop your hook on a narrow mud bank, but under your stern it falls away to nothing. After lunch, I left the youngsters playing on the beach, and taking a light fishing line, I worked my way back for perhaps half a mile. The underbrush was heavy and most uncomfortable on bare legs, and I had to make wide detours to avoid the devil's club. Then I had to force my way across to the stream, as my trail had been one of least resistance. It was a perfect trout stream, the water running along swiftly on a, a stony bottom, but with deep pools beside the overhanging banks, cool shade under fallen tree trunks. The sunshine drifted through the alders and flickered on the surface of the running water. Somewhere deeper in the forest, the shy thrushes were calling their single, abrupt, liquid note. Later, when the sun went down, the single note would change to the ascending triplets. Except for the thrushes, there was not a sound. All was still. I didn't have a rod. You, you can't cast in that this kind of growth. There is no room. I didn't use worms. I used an unripe huckleberry. An unripe huckleberry is about the size and color of a salmon egg, and trout love salmon eggs. Almost at once, I landed a fair-sized one on the mossy banks, on the mossy rocks, another, and then another. I ran a stick through their gills and moved to another pool. But suddenly, I was seized with a kind of panic. I simply had to get back to my children. I shouldn't be able to hear them from where I was if they called. I listened desperately. There was just no sense to this blind urge that I felt. Almost frantic, I fought my way back by the most direct route through the salmon, salmonberry, salal, and patches of Devil's Club. Coming, coming, I shouted. What was I going to rescue them from? I didn't know, but how desperately urgent it was. I finally scrambled through to the beach, blood streaming down my legs, face scratched, hands torn, blood everywhere. Five wondering faces looked at me in horror. The two youngest burst into tears at the sight of this remnant of what had once been their mummy. Are you all right? I gasped with a sudden seething mixture of anger and relief at finding them alive and unhurt. After an interval, the three girls took my fish down to the sea to clean, the two little boys helping me wash off the blood, and I sat with my feet in the stream. Devil's club spikes are very poisonous, and I knew their scratches would give me trouble for days. There's a man along at the other end of the beach, volunteered Peter. He's been watching us. All day, broke in John, and he's all dressed in black. 
I glanced at. A tall figure was standing there, against the trees, up behind the drift logs at the top of the beach, just standing there, arms hanging down, too far away to be seen plainly. Peculiar place for a clergyman to be, I thought inanely, and went back to the more important business of washing off the blood. Then I put on the shoes I had washed. Mummy, called Elizabeth. I glanced up. The three of them were looking towards the other end of the beach. The man is coming forward, said Fran. He's... Mummy, shrieked Jan. It didn't take us two minutes to drag the dinghy into the water, pile in and push off. The man was coming, but he was coming on all fours. The bear ate the fish that the children had dropped. Then as we pulled up the anchor not 30 feet away, she looked at us crossly, swung her nose in the air to get out our scent, and grumbled back along the beach to meet her two cubs. They had suddenly appeared from behind the logs and were coming along the beach in short runs. Between runs, they would sit down, not quite sure what their mother was going to think about it. She didn't think it was a good idea at all. She cuffed them both, and they ran back, whimpering to the logs. She followed and then stood up again, tall, black, arms hanging loosely down and idly watching us leave the bay. Mummy, demanded the children when they were quite sure we were safe. That bad dream you had last night that woke us all up, that you said you couldn't remember, was, was it about bears? No, at least I don't think so. But even as I spoke, I could remember how very urgent and terrifying something had been in that dream. I hesitated, and then I decided not to tell them about the strange blind panic I had felt by the stream. I could have smelt the bear downwind, but I knew that the panic and sense of urgency by the stream and the feeling in my dream had been one and the same. You can find Flipping Dreams podcast anywhere you love to listen to podcasts, or you can find us on RogueMediaNetwork.com. You can also find me on my social media, Facebook at Heather Renee May, on Instagram at underscore every day is May, or on my website at Heather Renee May. Dot com. That's Heather R E N E M A Y dot com. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.